Welcome to The Current, a podcast produced by We Stand for Energy. We Stand for Energy is a community that supports a reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy future for everyone. It is a project of EEI, Edison Electric Institute, the National Trade Association representing U.S. investor-owned electric companies. My name is Brad Viator, Executive Director of External Affairs at EEI, and I'm your host. Well, welcome back, everyone. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of having a conversation about what exactly went on in California on August 13th and 14th with those blackouts that got a fair amount of attention. And I have the pleasure of being joined by my colleague and friend, Phil Muller, the Executive Vice President of the Business Operations Group and Regulatory Affairs at the Edison Electric Institute, and a former FERC Commissioner and just general policy wonk to have this discussion. So welcome, Phil. Thanks for giving us a little bit of time to inform me and our audience about what's going on in California. Thank you, Brad. It's great to be on The Current, and this is a very current issue. So we are lined up. Excellent. Well, Phil, back on August 13th and 14th, there was a power service interruption and rolling blackouts in California. Can you tell our listeners what happened? I believe a lot of the information is still being collected, but on the surface, what happened was that there was a historic heat wave that not only hit California, but also hit other parts of the Pacific West Coast. And that is an integrated system, something we can talk about a lot more. There's a lot of seasonal power exchanges that go back and forth because the Northwest typically peaks in the wintertime with the amount of electric heat. The Southwest in California peak in the summer with air conditioning load. So the entire West Coast system was stressed. And then with the hot weather, there was an issue related to some of the wind being curtailed in terms of, you know, typically when you get a very hot period where there's perhaps an air inversion, there isn't a lot of breeze. And then because of cloud cover somewhat affected by smoke, as I understand it from the fires, the output of the states and nearby solar systems was reduced, coupled with two natural gas plants that went out of service unexpectedly. There just wasn't enough electricity on the West Coast to serve all the needs of California. Hence, the entity that regulates the grid in California, which is the California Independent System Operator, CAISO, in order to maintain system stability in most of the system, it had to resort to power shutoffs in other parts of the system. And hence, people were without power for various amounts of time. One thing I'll comment on to maybe clear up a little bit for some of our listeners that aren't policy wonks is that the electric system requires that supply and demand match for it to continue to operate. So this whole concept of curtailment had to be utilized where essentially the independent system operator would reach out or just shut power off of individual customers because that power itself was not available in real time. So they had to figure out ways to ensure that things stayed in balance. And that's just a matter of how the physics of the system work. Did I get that mostly correct, Phil? You did. And something that when we talk about energy policy that is always important to remember is that words on paper and in statutes are important and they guide us, but ultimately the laws of physics govern the electric system and those cannot be repealed. 
Yeah, that's something I think I want to pull the thread on. How exactly has policy in California contributed to the cause of the blackouts that we saw August 13th and 14th? Well, over the last few decades, California has been shifting its resources. There's essentially no more coal there. And there are some power plants that have been affected by the cooling water intake and outtake of the plants. There is, generally speaking, a hostility toward fossil fuels. And if you include natural gas as one of those, which most people do, it has had its challenges partly because of a leak of a major gas storage facility in the L.A. basin several years ago. And infrastructure is difficult to build throughout the United States, but particularly in urban areas. So there is a set of issues that have gone forward with, again, hopefully a renewed appreciation for the fact that we are still going to need gas generation to back up sources of renewable power that by their nature are intermittent. The sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. They're great resources, great for their environment, but they have to be part of a balanced package that assures reliability for the customers that are served. There's a nuclear facility down in Southern California, the San Onofre facility that went offline early. And then there's the Diablo Canyon up in Northern California, another nuclear facility that is going offline as well. What's the sort of impact of those resources, those carbon-free resources being unavailable in the California system? Well, starting with the San Onofre plant, that was in a very interesting load pocket that kind of was between LA and San Diego. So there had to be some immediate upgrades to the transmission system, as well as some storage resources that the California Public Utilities Commission ordered to be implemented so that, again, reliability would be maintained in that area. With Diablo Canyon, I believe the target date for shutdown is 2025. So that does give some time to plan for the impacts of that shutdown. But given that ours is the most capital-intensive industry in the United States and that siting and permitting sometimes takes longer than ideal, those are the kind of things that have to be dealt with more immediately to assure that when that is shut down, that facility, that again, reliability can be maintained. This isn't the first time that there have been power outages and rolling blackouts in California. Back in 2000, 2001, there were rolling blackouts in what is you know now referred to as the California energy crisis. Can you remind us what happened back then? The West Coast has a lot of hydropower. Most people are well aware of the Northwest, but there's significant hydropower in California as well. What happened in the winter of 99, 2000, was that it was a very dry winter. And that spring snow runoff in the Northwest provides a lot of power throughout the summer for the entire West Coast. So it was a dry year. And then a huge heat wave hit about the third week of May in 2000 throughout the Southwest. And suddenly power was in demand and there was a supply shortage based on the lack of hydro, generally speaking, in the West. So it began a period that arguably lasted for well over a year 
where prices were very high. We had three different areas in California where different companies were in different positions in terms of allowing their rates to reflect these higher costs. And essentially, they were buying wholesale power at extremely high prices and were not able to pass those prices on to their customers. So when you're losing money on a sale, you're not going to make it up in volume. And that created different problems for the various energy companies and other utilities in California. And so the market rules had actually been in place for several years, but they couldn't be manipulated until there was a supply shortage, which again, tracked back to the dry winter that the entire West Coast experienced during that winter of 99-2000. It created a lot of political problems. One company went into bankruptcy because of it. The ramifications are really still being felt today, not only in light of what's happened recently in California, but there is still some pending litigation from 2000 and 2001 that hasn't been completely resolved yet by the FERC, where I used to serve. And so I used that as a daily reminder when I was in that position that I never wanted something equivalent to happen while I was on watch. And it, it really guided me in terms of trying to anticipate problems before they became crises. Because once they become crises, elected leaders want to get involved and sometimes can overreact in terms of dealing with the actual issues. Well, that's interesting. Certainly some details there that I'm sure I didn't understand before this, but it seems like the outcome was similar, but the cause was a little bit different. You had companies who were buying things for more than they could sell them. Therefore, you had bankruptcy. And as a result of that, you had some loss of power supply that kind of became a market issue. The problem here is just like broader power supply. Like, how do we ensure that dispatchable power is available when we need it? It seems like that's a little bit different problem than what they were dealing with in 2001, 2002. Yeah, there are similarities, but there are differences. There's still a lot more investigation that has to occur related to what happened a while back in August. But we'll find out more as those investigations continue. But you start taking certain resources out of the mix for public policy reasons, whether it be, of course, coal, which is long gone, really, from that part of the world, and nuclear as well. And then you become more dependent on the supply resources that are still available. And as we stated earlier, we're going to need the gas for backup generation. The Kaiso has been warning for several years about the duck curve, which was the concept of a theoretical day in January of 2020, the year we're in, where because it's January, the sun is setting earlier, and hence the solar resources are eliminated. People are returning from work. That's when demand typically spikes late in the afternoon, and the need to have fast ramping resources that can match the demand. Because as you said earlier, this is one commodity that has to be produced instantaneously with its consumption. And uh, we have reserve margins so that there's some extra power when needed. But as proven last month 
in California, sometimes those aren't sufficient. You know, I don't want to just spend all of my time picking on California. Blackouts have existed in other places at other times. We've got the whole issue in Ohio with the squirrel that exists in a lot of people's brains. But the most recent rolling blackout, or maybe it was brownout that I'm recalling, was from Texas a few years ago. Can you tell us a little bit, maybe in broad strokes, like what the sort of situation and circumstance was down in ERCOT that led to that outcome? I'm not an expert on that outage. But I think it's fair to say that whenever you have extensive resources, particularly with Texas, it's blessed with some incredible wind, but it's typically in places where people don't live, at least not a lot of people live. So we call that in our geek speak location constrained resources. They need the transmission to get the power from where it's produced to where it's consumed. And again, you can have weather systems that come in and greatly reduce the amount of wind that's there. So it really goes to the fact that you need adequate resources with a bundle of options so that if you do have an event where some resource is limited, there are others that can pick it up. ERCOT's interesting because it is itself a bit of an island, apart from the other two major grids in the United States. It's not regulated by FERC, and it has an energy-only market, whereas some of our markets have what's called a capacity market, which is you're paid to have a resource available, and there'll be an auction, usually three years in advance, to acquire those resources. But there have been people who've raised the issue of adequate resources in Texas related to what their resource adequacy numbers are. That debate probably continues today. What do policymakers need to be thinking about broadly to mitigate against some of this risk, which is you know rare, but what do policymakers need to be thinking about so that we can avoid and sort of prevent some of these things from occurring before they do? To me, it comes down really to making sure you have a balanced set of resources to generate power and the infrastructure necessary to deliver it. And there's always going to be some redundancy in the system, but more of that, which is often provided by transmission, although there are new technologies that are coming on, such as storage, that can help. That's something where, in the grand scheme of things, It's not that much of a customer's bill, but if you don't have an adequate amount of it, you can really pay on other parts of the bill, such as the cost of energy that's consumed, because they're just like highways, power lines can get congested if there isn't the capacity to flow the power that's necessary for what customers are demanding at that moment. So making sure that it's an investment climate and a regulatory climate that allows the infrastructure to be built. And so to me, it's worth added investment to anticipate these kind of problems, whether it's redundancy in the infrastructure or whether it's stockpiling spare parts that might be necessary if either something breaks down or gets attacked. Things that are prudent investments now to minimize the impact of a future event.
Yep. And I think that policymakers in California could or maybe should welcome the idea of electric companies investing more in that system. I think it's a boon for economic growth and maybe there will be some good that comes from this event and we can look at increasing some of that transmission and distribution capacity as well as more investment in things like energy storage and longer cycle storage. And I recently saw there's a California is talking about delaying some closure of some gas facilities to ensure there's excess capacity that's available. So it seems like they're starting to make some smart choices. And I think there's opportunity for them to continue to make more of those. We hope that you found this to be an informative 15 minutes, and we look forward to bringing you additional expert insights about the intersection of energy policy and COVID-19. To learn more about the electric industry's response to COVID-19, visit www.eei.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Current and We Stand for Energy.